This episode is brought to you by Get Mobile ID by Get Group North America, the smart choice for ID implementations. Put citizens in control with Get Mobile ID, fully ISO compliant 18013-5, and surpasses AMVA guidelines. Learn more at getgroupna.com. Welcome to AMVACAST, bringing news, information, and expertise to the AMVA community. Here's your host, Ian Grossman. Enjoy the show. Hello there, everyone. Welcome back to the AMVACAST. This week, we are returning to a topic we've discussed before, mobile driver's licenses, but we're going to talk about a specific part of mobile driver's license, and that is a new project that AMVA is working on called the Digital Trust Service. And to talk with me about it, I have two guests this week. I've got Eric Jorgensen, who is the director of the Motor Vehicle Division in Arizona and the chair of AMVA's Digital Trust Service Steering Committee, and Mike McCaskill, AMVA's director of Identity Management. Gentlemen, welcome back. You've both been on before. Welcome back to the Amvacast. Thanks, Ian. Thanks for having us. So we've heard this phrase thrown around uh, a few times now, digital trust service. Amva has announced that we're building a minimally viable product version of a digital trust service. So let's start at the very beginning, which is what is a digital trust service? Who wants to tackle that at a very high level definition? Mike's looking at me. So, um, you, you know, at its essence, the digital trust service in its simplest form is just a place for reliant parties to go and get a key that they know comes from the issuing authority. In this case, you know, the jurisdictions, the states, the provinces, whoever, and be able to trust that that is a, a good public key that they can then use to validate the license on the mobile uh, device. So let's just break that down for our non-technical, non-MDL folks listening. When you say go and get a key, we're not talking a a physical thing. So explain what that is, that you're going to get a public key. So the public key is what, um, you think about like two sides to a a handshake, right? To this this, uh, way to say, I've got this digital driver's license, this thing that's sitting here, and it has been signed by the issuing authority. And the key is what allows me to unlock that signature and say, was that really, is the information really the information that the, that the issuing authority put on the device? And did it really come from that issuing authority? So it's a, a code or a decoder type cryptographic special uh, ring you just turn yes, it the right way but and it's, it decodes but you talk, it's yeah. zeros and ones it's about getting you know arizona has zeros and ones that are different than maryland zeros and ones and anyone who wants to read an mdl needs those zeros and ones and they could go around and collect them all from each of you individually or in this case what we're creating is a one-stop shop for them to get all of the jurisdictions zeros and ones in one place yes in its simplest form that's that's what we're trying to accomplish Mike, why, why do we need them all in one place? Why not, if I'm a, you know, if I'm someone who wants to accept Maryland's MDL, I could go to Maryland and get their zeros and ones. And if I want to accept Arizona's, I can go and get their zeros and ones. What's the, what's the reason, either from a jurisdiction's perspective or from a reader's perspective, that having it on one place is something worth doing? So, to, so in essence, for a relying party, 
if they were if there was not one place, then they would have to go to 69 different jurisdictions in the Anvil network in order to get those keys, and then they don't have to maintain relationships with each one of those issuing authorities, which means the issuing authority would also have to re maintain relationships with all the relying parties and know what relying parties wanted to consume or authenticate their MDLs. So the one-stop shop, the DTS, provides them, the issuing authority, a place to put their key and know that the other issuing authorities are putting their keys in there also so that the relying parties have one place to go and that the relying party now deals with the DTS to get those keys to authenticate each one of the jurisdictions MDLs. So in many ways, it's, it's an aggregator that's a convenience on both sides. The folks who have to read it don't have to run around to all 69. And for the jurisdictions, they don't have to be answering the phone or getting the information out to everybody who wants it. So Absolutely. One-stop shop. Makes it very simple for both sides, relying parties and issuing authorities. Now, we often talk about this digital trust service and the, the need for a public key exchange in the context of interoperability. So explain to me how that, how having these keys creates the MDL in an interoperable ecosystem versus as long as I have your key, why do I care if your MDL and you being, let's say, Utah, why would I care that Utah's MDL is similar to Arizona's MDL? As long as I have the key for both, what's the advantage of consistency as it relates to interoperability intersecting with this idea of of exchanging the keys. How did those two thoughts come together? I think that, that gets to the, the next level of what the DTS does for us. Um, what we also have are certain requirements to, to participate, right? You, you, have to, you have to do certain things to be able to get into this DTS. One of them is that you have to be interoperable. And the reason that that becomes important for us, I mean, think about you know, I'm Arizona. I am a reliant party. I'm an issuing authority, but I'm also a reliant party. I consume those um, different um, MDLs. Right now, I only consume them from Arizona. But wouldn't I love to consume an MDL from uh, Utah or California or one of my neighboring jurisdictions as they come in or, or as I have visitors to my state to be able to consume them if, you know, somebody's moving to my state and be able to to use that in, in my processes. Um, to do that, I can either build uh, to each different um, jurisdiction's specifications, or I can make sure that I have the same specification that works for all jurisdictions. Mm -hmm. And the DTS helps us to say, if you get the key from the DTS, you know that it's compliant, it's consistent with those specifications. So theoretically, those things could happen in parallel, where you have people being consistent or inconsistent and collecting public keys in one place, but by making the requirements to be in the central public key to follow, in this case, the, the ISO standard for interoperability, um, it one reinforces the other, as opposed to needing one for the other to happen. Exactly. Okay. So, Amva has decided to create this central location that we're calling the, the, the digital trust service. Um, I referred to it initially that we're building a minimally viable product. Mike, what does that mean that we're building a minimally viable product of something? So we put just enough effort into the system. We build the system with the minimum components, just what you need for it to operate, 
so that a issuing authority can put their key into the list and a relying party can go to a public website and download the list. You, we're, not, we're not building a complete production ready system because we want to make sure that we have it right. We want to know all the components that we need to have. We need to know more about the requirements that we're putting forth so that the issuing authorities that are onboarded can be trusted by the relying parties. And we also need to make sure that the websites that we're producing that are public facing are in a, in a position so that the relying parties can easily download those lists. Well, if we build a full system and, we're, and we miss some of those components, well, then we have to go back and rebuild or retool. Mm -hmm. A minimal viable product gives you the opportunity to tool on the fly yeah. in a smaller programmatic solution. And, and our MVP is going to have some manual processes in it mm -hmm. that we want to make uh, automated. But to automate them, we got to know how they work manually first. So our MVP is going to allow us to determine what a production solution should look like and be able to build that the first time out. Gotcha. I think another interesting thing that comes from it is it tells us what is it going to take to operate this mm -hmm. and it allows us to start making some planning decisions about what kind of resources will we need to do this, right? And, and, how, do, and how do we do that? How do we, how do we take care of those needs? So for, for example, even that first step, we don't necessarily know yet what does it mean to onboard a jurisdiction who wants to load their key into the trust service. Right. That's clearly going to take work on, part of the, on the part of the jurisdiction to do, and it's going to take work on part of the AMVA staff to do. And we really need to understand how much work are we asking for, what is it that we're asking for, and, and be able to come up with a good guide guidance document or, or something mm -hmm. along those lines to help jurisdictions be prepared to onboard onto that in the easiest manner possible. So is that something that the steering committee that you're chairing is working on right now, that guidance for if a, if a jurisdiction wants to add their public key to the digital trust service, the steps they're going to have to go through to do that? Yeah, that's been actually the, the biggest focus that we've had so far in the, in the, um, in the steering committee is what's required and how are, we, how are we going to communicate that to the jurisdictions. And when you say what's required, it goes back to your initial statement around to be on the digital trust service, your MDL product will need to meet the, the ISO standard, the implementation guidelines. What's, the, what's that gold standard that we're going after that says this is what we want the product to look like to be part of the DTS? So our initial uh, phase of that will be taking the implementation guidelines and requiring the must and shalls. The reason for that is the must and shalls are referencing the ISO 18013 Part 5 standard, which is the standard interface for interoperability. Mm -hmm. If you're not interoperable, the solution is problematic. You have to be interoperable with other jurisdictions so relying parties know what to expect. Right. And the implementation guidelines was the document that ANVA put together to help the jurisdictions understand what 18013 meant and some of the things outside of 18013 that should be considered when implementing a solution so that the interoperability happens and trust happens and that your provisioning services is, is you know, of, of up to par with uh, just normal technology. So we, we took that document. We used a must in the shalls, you must do this or you shall do that as a starting point. And that is kind of our, our initial phase of onboarding. And we'll take that document, use it for onboarding for our issuing authorities once the MVP is stood up. And then if we need to make changes, if we miss something in the implementation guidelines or we're, there's an additional set of steps that should be taken that we missed, 
we can add that to the document. So it's an evergreen fluid document so that we get ready for the production. This document is designed to grow so that when we have it ready for production, it's a good solid document for onboarding and for trust. And so that onboarding then, once a jurisdiction knows that they've met the ISO standard, which I guess leads to the question, how do they know they've met the ISO standard? So there are, uh, in, in some of these requirements, there are what we call third party or, uh, I forget the term we use, independent, independent uh, certification, certification, where uh, a technical third party will have to go into that MDL and, and make sure that the ISO 18013 requirements are met for interoperability. Mm -hmm. So that's a third party. The state's not, doesn't have the technical expertise to do that. Plus you want a outside sure. independent party to do that. So neither the jurisdiction nor AMVA as an operating entity is making that determination. A third party is. That's, that's absolutely correct. Then outside of that, for the other parts of the implementation guidelines that are the musts and shalls that are not as technical, they're self-certified. Okay. Meaning that the state says, we meet these, mm -hmm. we're certifying that we meet these because there are, you can see that in the application and the state is certifying that we're meeting those, those requirements. That's our starting point. And as technology advances and as, as uh, uh, certification bodies change and as independent bodies change, with that document may morph and change with it so that technology keeps up, but we're doing the best, we're putting our best foot forward so that the DTS Digital Trust Service mm -hmm. is always a trust point for issuing authorities to know that their keys are, are adequate and the relying parties know they can trust that the data that they're getting, that they're getting from the MDL from those issuing authorities was issued by the issuing authority. It was a true issuing authority issued to that person an issue to that device and the data hasn't changed. All of that cryptography around that is what certifies and, and authenticates all of that. that. That said, when we looked at whether something should be uh, independently certified or it was a self-certification, you know, we, we did recognize that anytime you have an, ind an independent third party doing this, that, that's a resource draw. It's a different kind of resource draw than a, than a self-certification. So we were very careful in making sure that we only we're recommending a, a independent certification. In those cases where it was pretty clear that um, you weren't gonna have the technical expertise to be able to do that aspect. So we didn't, we didn't want to overuse that independent third party where a self-certification would, would suffice. And so the jurisdiction does that and now they are going to be onboarded. And I think you said earlier, we don't know exactly what those steps look like in terms of the transferring of the public key from the jurisdiction to the DTS, but those details are coming. And then once it's there, we have this idea that the issuing authority can then go and get the key. What might that look like? You know, we might have some folks listening going, oh yeah, I'm, I want to read these MDLs and I would love to not have to call everybody so I can come to one place. How do we start framing what they might expect in terms of their end once this is available? You're talking about the, the reliant the parties. parties. That's right, yeah. Um, well, I, I mean, that's, that's I don't know that it's totally built out. And it's <laughs> the okay architecture to say we're too point. soon to say. Um, I mean, it's, but I, I'll give you an example. So in Arizona, yeah. where, where we, we have our public key out there, um, it it's just our key and it's it's publicly available. I mean, that's what a public key is. It's meant to be out there, circulated, available to whoever. And then we have 
um, a way to verify that it was downloaded correctly. Um, you know, you can do your your your, um, all the, your technical ways of, of validating that download to make sure it was all correct and that it that it was done appropriately. Um, the the concept for the DTS is to provide that, but on a large scale mm -hmm. where you can download an entire list of these, look, you know you went to the right place, you know you, you got the right keys, and here's the list of the, the participating jurisdiction issuing authority keys, and you can load all of them at once into, into your Whatever verifiers. you're using as a reader. So depending on the reader I am as a relying party will depend on what I need to do with those keys at that point. Do keys change? Uh, not frequently. Um, the they do expire, but it's on a uh, on a years out basis. So these are the the master key. It, it um, I'm trying to remember. I think it was like 12 year expiration dates on on those. They could be revoked if if there becomes a problem with the key. If if for some reason the jurisdiction were to lose control of that master key and it was compromised, they can be revoked and that would be a place where um, you would get the new key from that jurisdiction. And in that case though, the reliant party would still have the old key and it would still work and they would need to be notified or that key would just stop working when they were talking to a credential from that jurisdiction? It's actually both. Um, the, the concept in the DTS for the public facing website where the relying parties would go get the key list um, the concept would be they would continue, they could come back to that list periodically and see if there was a change. Or there, there may even be a, a, conceptually, there would be a message that went out to the relying parties who were, who were getting the keys from the website to say there's been a change, come back and, and get the new list. But the list is always, when they come get the list, that is the current list of keys that have not been revoked. They're true keys for the issuing authority. And then they take those keys and distribute them, you know, if it's a central distribution for them, say a large uh, grocery store chain, then they would distribute those out to all of their readers, maybe from a central location. They wouldn't necessarily have to get every reader to come to get it from the, from the website. But as the keys change, that notice would go out and, and the relying parties would know to come download. Or they just hit the website every so often to see if there's been a change. Right. So I think that's a really good description of what, at the very basic level, what a DTS would do and how these keys work. I think it's also maybe important to talk a little bit about what it, what it doesn't do, whether that's because it's not part of the minimally, minimal viable product or because it's not something that DTS does, but maybe some assume it does because it's part of an MDL ecosystem. For example, um, I would suggest that sometimes there's a misunderstanding that the DTS is a validation of the credential. That if I'm a relying party, I'm reading in Arizona, I'm coming through the digital trust service to validate that it's an Arizona credential. And the, the public key isn't really what does that. There's a different connection in MDL that does that, but it's not the digital trust service. One of you wanna tell me, am I right that that's a misconception or am I, am I messing up the misconception myself? So you're not incorrect, you're correct. The DTS is only going to be able, to, is only going to provide the list of public keys for each of the issuing authorities that issue NDLs that have been loaded into the DTS. There's no personal data in the DTS, there's no data exchange in the DTS. Um, the MDL concept stays intact. If you're in an offline situation where you're getting your information from the device itself, 
the public key that you downloaded from the DTS is used to authenticate the private key that signed all the data on the MDL offline in, in a device-to-device uh, -device retrieval. And if you are using server retrieval where you're going back to the jurisdiction mm -hmm. and the, and the uh, MDL holder gives you a token and says, I'm allowing you to get this data that you're asking for from the server at the issuing authority, then it goes back to the issuing authority with that public key. Issuing authority can, de can determine that that is their key, that is the data, and that token is correct. And then they send the requested data back to the relying party. The DTS has nothing to do with any of those transactions mm -hmm. other than the relying party was able to obtain the public key list and the public key for that jurisdiction from the DTS. There's no other data in the DTS. Yeah, a, a relying party really shouldn't be going to the DTS very often. Oh. They, they go and they, they get the list. And actually in the beginning, there's probably going to be more pinging to that because you have jurisdictions coming As on. As the keys to the, are coming on. Exactly. They're so they're going to go pick up that list. But in the long run, I mean, you do it you do it when you need to go grab the key the first time. But if that key's good for 12 years, mm -hmm. theoretically, you don't really have to come back for 12 years. So. And. You talked earlier about the idea that we want to figure out the minimal version of it, but there may be things that it does do in time. Knowing that we're not committed to any of it, these are kind of just ideas, but just to give folks a sense of what are things that a digital trust service could do over time that don't expect in round one, but to say as it could grow, the things it could do to help support the larger MDL ecosystem could be well, what couldn't it be? I mean, oh, okay. the, the opportunities yeah. are endless. No, I, I think that there's a, a lot of things around reliant parties where, you know, we've looked and thought there, there are certain benefits that reliant parties could get out of a, a digital trust service that would also benefit, you know, our customers, our citizens, um, you know, notification services to them of when there is a change, when a new when a new uh, jurisdiction comes on and they need to get a key, mm -hmm. there are ways where we could um, push uh, kind of information to the, the relying parties. There are ways where we could um, help the relying parties understand what their responsibility around privacy and security and data minimization and, and all that is by them being an active participant in it. Um, there are things that I think could benefit um, our, our citizens, um, if we if we expand beyond um, just having our certificates, and there's there 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 are places where reliant parties could have certificates that might give us information about their privacy practices or or what they do with data that we'd want to pass on to a a customer to say, hey, you should know this about your. Your, uh, your reliant party who's asking for the data. And, and so I think that there are things like that that can come into the future. I think as you, as you look at mobile driver license being an, uh, an international standard, mm -hmm. that uh, eventually there might be ways where reliant parties can pick up international uh, keys as well to, to be able to do some identity vetting, not just in the 69 jurisdictions here in, in, in the US and Canada, but, but Potentially globally. Yeah. So in, in that, Eric, you mentioned the idea of the roles and responsibilities of the relying party. So we talked about even from day one, the issuing authorities are going to have to meet certain guidelines to be in. 
again, going back to the ISO standard, is there an equivalent of that on the relying party? You know, because you, you also said the public keys are meant to be public. So anybody who wants to read an MDL can go and get the public key and read the MDL. Or is there some level of, well, no, it's not really anybody. You need to have, you need to meet some criteria to be a relying party. Well, and that's the hard part, is once the key's public, it's public. Yeah. And, and um, even if you don't get it from the digital trust service, if you get it from anywhere, you have the public key. So it's not really an effective mechanism for trying to, to regulate um, re reliant parties. And so I think we have to look for other mechanisms. And that is where something like a, a third-party certificate might come into play to say, you know, you can you you have extra trust around that mm -hmm. uh, it's places where uh, we also your own jurisdictional regulations uh, w what the laws look like in your state what requirements there might be there that's a good place for for you to consider what needs to happen with reliant parties because this is i, I mean some of this really is greenfield mm -hmm. um, uses of of this information new ways to use identity information where we do want to preserve privacy as much as possible and yeah. we do want to to require data minimization as a, as a standard but that's how the MDL was built that was all built in mind to, um, to to have that as kind of the core of what we're trying to accomplish and we're building something that's not only never been built before it's, it's really never been done before there's we've looked for equivalencies in other industries and there are some pieces that have matched and overlapped, particularly, I think, in you know, credit card transactions and, and payment systems. Uh, but is it safe to say, I mean, not to pat ourselves all on the back collectively, right? But we're really doing something that's never been done before here. We are. And we're do that's why we are being so deliberate with how we're, we're approaching this, going an MVP first, mm -hmm. get our requirements, figure out whether what works, what doesn't, what's more privacy preserving, what's less privacy preserving, so that when we build the full production service, it matters and it makes sense and, and it's privacy preserving and it does all those things that we're expecting it to do, but we've gone through phases to get there. Understanding that digital credentials issued by a jurisdiction in the US at least, in the Canada, who actually issues identity documents, have not issued digital credentials before. That's where the MDL has become a very specialized situation. And the MDL being a package deal with the ISO standard. Package meaning it's privacy preserving, it's data security preserving, it's interoperable, all in one package. Yeah. Um, makes it a very good model for building the DTS so that the interoperability can be expanded, so that relying parties can go to one place, know they're getting the right keys and can trust those keys and then be able to authenticate those MDLs but also giving the, the customer, the MDL holder, the same privileges that they have today with their physical credential. Because if it's not usable in the same places and in the same types of situations, mm -hmm. then you're actually, you're not effective as, as effective as the physical card. So when the MDL does fill gaps that the, that the physical card has, it also needs to be able to be used in those same situations. So giving the customer that complete and total authority over how they're data is, is used and transferred, that's important. So that DTS kind of follows that same guidance with uh, onboarding with the issuing authority. So all in all, it's brand new, but we're going at a phased approach so we make it the best it can be when it does get to full production.
So now everyone's listened to this, they're excited, they wanna get their keys on, they wanna read the keys, they want the keys. What's the timeline? We keep talking about a minimally viable product. When, uh, when do we expect this thing to be available? When can jurisdictions expect information to be able to say, I wanna to prepare to give you my key? Um, Mike, do you want to talk us through the project timeline? Sure. Um, so uh, right now, the, the goal is to have the digital trust service ready for public keys sometime first quarter of next calendar year. So somewhere between January and March of 2023. Um, to be ready to accept keys, to start that onboarding process. To start process that onboarding that process. Um, I, I expect for jurisdictions and, and relying parties to hear about... Uh, the onboarding document and the requirements from that sometime around uh, fourth quarter this calendar year. Um, that, that document will be ready, uh, I believe, by then. And, and jurisdictions will need to take that, those that want to participate and who, are, who have uh, MDLs solutions available. They need to go ahead and get that document when it's ready and, and reverse engineer the fact that they're need, you know, they want to be ready for when the, the digital trust service is ready so they get themselves prepared for what they're going to have to go through to get their key onboarded, so you're going to see a lot of a lot of work and a lot of stuff come out in the next uh, five months or so. Now, the early adopters will have to reverse engineer. Those that have been waiting to see where things progress will be able to just build to those specifications. That's correct, Eric. You're an early adopter. We've talked about this before on other podcasts, and others in the other community have heard you talk about it. Well known, Arizona has a MDL product in the market, um, two. two products uh, on, in the market, uh, you know, looking conjecture out, you know, how much traverse engineering do you think you're going to have to do in Arizona? So here's, uh, you know, as we've, we've had these conversations and, and I think it started with the pop-up classroom uh, that we did in San Diego, fantastic learning experience. It was, it was great to really go through the, the uh, guidelines step-by-step. Doing this piece right here, right now, I think it helps us go through it step by step. And um, so that's one of the best benefits of going through this is understanding deeper each time we go through this, what needs to happen. That said, yeah, it, it makes me look at my, both both my products and say, hmm, there's some gaps that, that we're going to have to go back and fill. But I've always thought of this as an investment. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, yes, we knew that by being an early adopter, we were going to have to go back and make changes. I, I don't know that there's massive changes because we've we've basically known where the 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 ISO standard would be. the The um, guidelines were published early. Now those are living, breathing document. They're consistently changing, so so there are constantly updates to to be looking for and seeing that. But I think the guidance out there right now has been good, so uh, I don't think, feel like there's there should be anything really surprising in what we're recommending for those for those guidelines. And I think that'll be good news for the other early adopters who are listening. Of course, you know, like you said, you know, it's an investment in being an early adopter. You're never going to be first and not have to adjust. It's just uh, just kind that's of the way it goes. goes. Yeah. yeah. So as we start to wrap up, is there anything else about digital trust service and what we're building that our community may want to know about that we haven't touched on as we start to get our head wrapped around this? Like I said, it's a little different piece of MDL than we've talked about before. It's not just about a jurisdiction building, provisioning, and issuing it. It's about now laying that groundwork for a more cohesive ecosystem. Uh, there's going to be a lot more coming as we've talked about now, but I want to make sure there's nothing else 
of major thought as I invite you both to talk about this. You're like, ah, I got to make sure I say this. Well, I don't know, but you left the microphone open, so I'm going to keep talking a little bit. But I, th I think your point is, is, is right on. This is going to help be the basis for an ecosystem. Mm -hmm. And I think as we, as we go through it, we're seeing more and more that there are, there are aspects of identity that maybe we haven't fully done in the past and that aren't part of, you know, secure identities is always, you know, it's, it's in there, it's in our, in our statement there. But what secure identity means is becoming more and more around where does this go with digital identity and, and what is our role? And I, I think that the, the DTS is really making us think about what's our role in this entire ecosystem. So minimum viable product, coming out, but there, I think there is a lot more coming after that, that, that it, that really will, we really mean it when we say that's the minimum viable product and we're going to continue to expand. I see this as changing the landscape of identity in general. We, uh, we as issuing authorities have for many, 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 many years been issuing credentials the same way on the same carrier. It's, it went from, from, animal skins back in the Roman era, now we're in, in, in Teslin cards. Uh, now we're on digital devices. And I think with that expansion comes, uh, that when that happens and when the MVP goes live and then we start into a production service, we're seeing a lot of interest in this topic already and the interest is just gonna grow. And so I think once, once you see the, DT, the DTS MVP come out and you start seeing the relying parties attached to it, now you're going to start seeing that chicken and the egg happen. Mm. We, are, we are going to see people, the relying parties and issuing authorities coming together to progress the digital landscape to make the issuing authorities' identities that much more productive and much more safe. So I, I see a lot in the, in the future, but I see a whole bunch in the near future in that yes. regard. Well, that's a great cliffhanger to leave our audience on as to what, what is coming and more will be coming very soon. Uh, gentlemen, uh, thank you so much for chatting with me today and educating our audience on this digital trust service. Thank you all for listening this week. Thanks, as always, to our producers, Claire Jeffrey and Chelsea Hadwin. Till next week, everyone, stay well. Thank you for joining us for AmbaCast. Hosted by Ian Grossman. Produced by Claire Jeffrey and Chelsea Hadwin. Music by Gibson Arthur. This episode was brought to you by Get Mobile ID by Get Group North America. Visit us at amvacast.podbean.com and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and Spotify.